Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to remind you about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now, on with the show. We do not want a generation of doctors believing that sex is a social contract because diseases manifest differently in men and women. The idea that we're going to replace the idea of biological sex with gender identity in a medical context is incredibly dangerous, and it's going to be dangerous for the very people they are supposedly trying to help. So if you go into a hospital and somebody says, what are your pronouns, that's one thing. But if they say, what are your pronouns, and they don't also note that you are a biological male or a biological female, there's going to be issues when you are seeking health care. So I don't see how this even benefits trans people. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Katie Herzog. Katie is a writer and podcaster. She was a staff writer for The Stranger in Seattle until 2020, and her work has also appeared in BuzzFeed, Mother Jones, The Guardian, and many other outlets. Katie hosts the Blocked and Reported podcast with Jesse Single. In 2017, Katie wrote a piece for The Stranger on detransitioners, trans people who decide to revert to their original gender. The article caused a huge storm. Activists in Seattle even burnt copies of The Stranger. Since that experience, Katie has become a leading critic of cancel culture and the hysteria of so much contemporary public debate. I want to talk to you about cancel culture, what it means, your experience of it, the impact it's having on the world and on public discussion more broadly. Um, But just to get us into that discussion, I wonder if I could ask you about your own experience. I know you've spoken about this a lot, but for the benefit of my listeners who who may not know your particular story. So um, in my view, your story is one of the most shocking and certainly one of the clearest examples of how cancel culture works and how unforgiving and intolerant cancel culture can be. So in a nutshell, you wrote about detransitioners in 2017 for The Stranger. Detransitioners, of course, are people who transition from one gender to another and then change their minds and go back. It's a very controversial area and your article provoked a storm. So could you just give us an overview of what your piece was about and what kind of impact it had? Sure. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. Um, so the piece was, as you mentioned, this was in 2017. So this was before we had the term cancel culture in, uh, in the popular parlance. And it was about, it was about detransitioners. I mean, it was a pretty simple, straightforward story. It was a profile of a number of, of, 
of primarily women, natal females who had transitioned to male or to men and then transitioned back. There were, I also interviewed a couple of guys in there. Um, but it was primarily focused on women. And uh, the piece, when I read back on it now, it's sort of shocking how much vitriol this provoked because I was so careful to make it obvious that I wasn't transphobic. And part of this was self-protection because I had a feeling that this was going to provoke people. Um, but about half of the piece is hedging and it's about the conservative backlash to trans issues. It was about these bills that at the time were, um, I live in Washington state and this was for the Seattle alt weekly called the strangers. So it was about, about bills that were targeting trans people and, uh, who wanted to use the bathroom of their preferred gender. I had the voices of happily transitioned people within the piece to sort of make sure that everybody knew that I knew that it's okay for adults to transition. And yet it caused this massive storm. And like all of these things, it started out online. But in my case, it went offline pretty quickly. And part of this is because of where I lived. Uh, Seattle is a very progressive city. It's also a very politically homogenous city. Like you're more, you're much more likely to get a socialist on the city council than a, than a Republican in, in Seattle. So this firestorm, besides the online vitriol, which was global, it, locally, people did things like printed off flyers calling me transphobic and put them in the coffee shops in my neighborhood, uh, that I would go to. They took the papers out of the paper. So the, the strangers are free all weekly. So their paper boxes or there were, this is, Pre-COVID, there's no longer a print edition now, but there are paper boxes all over the city and people took all of the papers out and replaced them with these flyers calling me in the paper transphobic. They burned stacks of the paper and sent me video of it. So my work has been actually burned. This was a couple years later. People made stickers and, and put stickers up calling me transphobic. They, uh, there's a sticker still up in Seattle all over the place with a picture of my face calling me a Nazi sympathizer. There's a sticker calling me a Jordan, Jordan Peterson apologist, which I find very humiliating. Um, so, and I lost a bunch of friends. That was sort of the most emotionally trying part of the whole thing. I'm a lesbian. Mm. I've, I, until, until then I was in what I think is like pretty good standing within the queer community, which is not actually a thing that exists, but the queer population, most of my friends have, has, as an adult have always been queer. And that, um, and they just sort of dropped me. Almost everybody just dropped me. There's a, a bar that I used to go to, a gay bar in my old neighborhood in Seattle. Somebody, I didn't see this, but I heard about it. Somebody printed off, um, a picture of my face and put it in the urinal. So you can tell just from these incidents about what it was like for me to live in the queer neighborhood in Seattle. It was, it was, stressful. Every time I left my house, I felt like, should I be wearing a, you know, actually I moved before COVID. If I had been able to wear the face mask at the time, it would have been fine. <laughs> but I would, I would have fantasies like, I'm just going to, I'm going to convert to Islam and like put on a burqa so nobody can, can, can see me or not convert, just wear the burqa. So on a, on a personal, emotional, social level, it was incredibly difficult. On a professional level, however, things were a little different because before I wrote this piece, I had been a, a basically a completely unknown freelance writer. I had spent most of my career writing about climate change. I'd worked in public radio before this. Nobody knew who I was outside of these sort of very niche communities. And uh, this piece changed that. I got a, I was a freelancer at the time. I got a job at The Stranger out of it. Um, I think not just because of the piece, but because of sort of the way I handled it impressed my, my bosses, not my 
colleagues, but my bosses, who were, I think, I think they appreciated that I refused to apologize. So there were lots and lots of calls for me to apologize. And I refused because I hadn't done anything wrong. And I don't apologize for things that I haven't done or things that I've done that aren't wrong. So this was, this is 2017, sort of early in these days of call out culture, cancel culture. And it really changed my life in all sorts of ways. So professionally, it was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, personally, probably the worst, but it also had this other effect of, of really changing how I view the world. Because until then, I had been what I would describe as sort of a knee-jerk liberal. And I know the terms are different in the UK, but I had been just sort of a, I, I, re- I, I genuinely believed that conservatives were either stupid or they were evil and there was nothing in the middle. I genuinely <laughs> believe that. And after this, I started to see like the people attacking me here, the people calling me transphobic. And I'm not, I'm not actually transphobic, or at least I wasn't until then. They were wrong. And I knew this. And I started to think like, wait a second. If my side, if my political allies, if my friends are wrong about this, what else are we wrong about? And so it was this very destabilizing experience because it was almost like finding out that the world is flat. The world isn't flat, but it was almost like finding that out. Um, because it just changed, it changed everything for me. It, it really, I, I haven't, it just hasn't changed the way that I vote. I didn't become a Trump supporter or anything like that. But I, um, I look at issues now rather than the people talking about the issues. So I'm much less, uh, doctrinaire in my political beliefs. I'm much more empathetic, I think, towards people who have allegations leveled against them. I'm much more skeptical as a journalist. So I think as a journalist, it's made me a much better reporter um, and, a, and a better analyst because I do not believe the things that I see and I read anymore. And there's some, there can be some downside to that. It's possible. It's definitely possible to be too skeptical. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of what happened. So, so at once the best and the worst things that uh, have happened to me. The best of times and the worst of times. I, I think I, I want to get down into this question of the, the the upsides of cancel culture and the contradictory impact that cancel culture can have on a person's life, uh, both professionally and in terms of transforming their thinking into something a bit more sceptical, a bit more open-minded. I think that's a really important point that you've drawn out quite well over the past few years. But before we do that, just to stick on this particular issue that you wrote about and why there was this ferocious response, I mean, newspapers being burned, images on urinals, uh, you know, a genuine digital inquisition, a 21st century witch hunt is the only way in which that, that can be described. So uh, on, in terms of the specifics, what do you think it is about the detransitioning issue in particular that provokes this kind of response? Do you think it, it's just that it it calls into question some of the certainties of the trans lobby, some of the mantras of the trans lobby, or, or the idea that every transition is this wonderful, glorious, Catelyn Jenner-style Vanity Fair cover situation when the reality is just often very different. Do you think it's it's simply that it chips away at one of the orthodoxies of our time and that's just not acceptable? Yeah, I think I think trans some trans people and their allies and people who think they're their allies perceive it as as politically dangerous. And I understand that because it is true that in the U.S. we have had a spate of bills that would limit trans people's rights to use the bathroom, limit access to health care. I should say I'm, I'm against these bills. I don't really want the government involved in any of this. But still, I think there are legitimate concerns about limits on, on freedoms. There have been 
in the U.S., there historically been a lot of gatekeeping about trans healthcare until fairly recently. You had to live as the as your desired sex for two years um, before you could get any sort of medical treatment. Trans people, many trans people found that onerous. Some trans people didn't find it onerous and found, you know, are glad that they had. I, I've talked to people like Buck Angel who had. There was lots of gatekeeping when Buck Angel, who's in his fifties, I think transition 30 years ago. He's glad that there was gatekeeping for him because it, it turned out that his, he genuinely had dysphoria. His transition has been the best thing that's happened to him, et cetera. Um, but he needed that sort of the long process there. But for some trans people that that's seen as too onerous, you don't want to live for two years. You want immediate access. You want what you want now. Mm-hmm. And so detransitioners are a threat to that because what detransitioners often, not always, but what they often argue is that there should be more gatekeeping specifically around youth because Mm-hmm. You know, they're kids. And a lot of these kids are making the wrong decision. And we don't have great numbers on this, of course. Um, and so for, for, for some trans people, this is seen as a threat. And they want to prevent the discussion from happening. They want to silence these voices. But, you know, you can't silence the voices. And if anything, it's going to have the opposite effect. Um, and ultimately, probably damage their political cause in the end. In relation to the question of uh, younger people in particular and the transition process, I mean, one of the things that people in the UK have tried to raise the problem of young people possibly being rushed into a course of action that is has, you know, pretty severe consequences for their life, for their bodies, for their mental health, for their hormones and everything else. And anyone who says you know, let's just think about this for a bit. Let's be careful how we speak to these children, how we uh, offer them therapy, what we say to them. Uh, Anyone who says that will immediately be denounced as transphobic, will immediately be held up as someone who hates trans people and is preventing them from being their real self. And in fact, wants to erase trans people. That word erasure always comes up. And your experience uh, speaks to this phenomenon as well, where even someone who is sympathetic to the trans community thinks that trans people should have rights even someone like that like you can be described as transphobic simply for raising particular questions about a particular issue so what what function do you think words like transphobic play i mean you know we're all open to the idea that there are anti-trans prejudices in society but isn't transphobia as a term something different it's become this kind of chastising word that is used to police the parameters of acceptable discussion on, on trans issues. Oh, you're exactly right about this. Anybody who questions what's happening, anybody who says, wait a second, let's at least talk about these issues. Let's figure out why the number of people seeking uh, transition, the number of kids, especially natal female, teenage girls, especially teenage females, especially has spiked. Anybody who says, mm-hmm. wait a second, what is going on here is immediately called transphobic or called a turf. And once you have that label, you are not, you are no longer worth listening to. So it's a, it's, it's weaponizing language to stop the conversation, which is, can be, uh, an effective tactic, except at some point the term becomes meaningless, right? If somebody mm. calls me transphobic right now, I don't really care. I know what the truth is. You know, the people who follow me, the people who listen to me know what the truth is. It's a way of shutting down the conversation and I'm not going to be shut up. Um, I, I just happen to be in a position because I'm, I'm funded by through, the listeners of my podcast primarily i don't have to at this point anymore worry about about these labels sort of sticking to me because i've found alternative revenue models if i were trying to get a job at the atlantic or the guardian or 
the New York Times or some any sort of establishment, I think it would be nearly impossible. Um, so thank God these alternative funding models have, have emerged because people like me can still make a living. But I'm, I'm the exception to the rule here. If you're an academic, you're going to get in trouble. If you're a teacher, you're going to get in trouble. If you're, if you're trying to get a job, job, a real job and not have a dumb podcast that people for some reason pay you to listen to, um, you can, it's very, it's actually very dangerous. And we've seen this. We've seen lots of cases where, where people, uh, the cancellation really sticks. There are exceptions like me and my co-host Jesse Single where it can ultimately benefit you. Um, but we are the exception and not the rule. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I really, uh, I have a number of questions on cancel culture that I, I want to ask you, but uh, just a few more questions on the trans issue and and the impact it's having on on what it means to be progressive, I guess, because this is something that strikes me quite a lot. I consider myself a, a pretty old-fashioned kind of progressive. I think um, the struggle for gay rights was one of the most important leaps forward of the 20th century. That level of equality that people achieved and autonomy and the right to live as they chose without the harsh judgments or discrimination of the moral majority or the state. All of this stuff was incredibly important from the 1960s onwards in various different areas of life, including in relation to sexuality. And one of the things that concerns me about the trans issue, critics of the the excesses of trans activism are often instantly written off as conservative and right wing and uh, you hate gay people, you hate trans people. But one thing that concerns me is the impact that the transgender ideology is having on something like gay rights and on the right of, as you say, young women transitioning is now becoming a real spike. And the impact that it's having in particular on the idea of a lesbian, not not simply on lesbian rights, but on the very existence of, uh, of lesbianism and the idea that it's a specific form of sexual attraction and that there's nothing to be ashamed of. So what we have in the UK, and I'm sure it's a similar situation in, in the US, you have rising numbers of girls, young women who are clearly lesbians, who in a sense are being corrected. They're being medically corrected to turn them into the correct sex. You know, well, you must really be a man if you're attracted to other women, if you display these tomboyish trends or whatever else it might be. How have we got to a situation where it is considered progressive to medically correct gay people and transform them into a supposed opposite gender. Yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, a lot of people deny that this is happening, but I think that those people are blind or they are not involved in these communities. Just from my own experience. So I am 38 years old. My peers are my age, you know, within like 10, 15 years of, of on either side of that. And the number of 
dykes of former lesbians I know who have transitioned over the past 10 years is shocking. I am not talking about teenagers. Mm. I am talking about grown ass women. And I find this out mostly through social media, like through, I'm scrolling through Instagram and another one of my friends comes out as non-binary or, or, or trans and shows off their top surgery scars and announces their new name. This happened twice yesterday, twice while I was scrolling through Instagram. Someone I used to work with at a lesbian bookstore came out as, as, you know, as, as a trans man, used to hate men, now is a man. This is happening at such a bizarre rate that is almost impossible to describe. And when I talk about it, people do not believe me. They do not believe me, but it is true. This is something that is happening. This is true. My own lived experience tells me that this is happening and not just in like cities like Seattle. I'm from North Carolina. This has happened in small, small towns in North Carolina that I've lived in. It is a total phenomenon. And, uh, yeah. So how we got here, that's a good question. I think what's happening is I think it's a social contagion. And that's a, it's sort of a, an, a simple explanation, maybe a little bit too simple, maybe a little bit, I don't know, too simplistic, a little bit too elegant to, uh, to describe any, any cultural phenomenon. But I've seen this over the last, about the last 10 years. And my first inkling that something was, was happening. So I started to know trans people. I, I met a trans person, an out trans person for the first time when I think I was 18. And for the first, so for the first 18 years of my life, I knew one trans person. And then the last 18 years of my life, literally half of the lesbians I know have transitioned or have decided that they're non-binary. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I say half here. It's just an immense, an immense number. So it happened sort of gradually, but I, I, I first really started to think about the possibility that there was something else going on. Like there were in my community, there was always a handful of trans guys. And, you know, there's this narrative that we have now that trans men are men and trans women are women. In reality, there's always been trans guys sort of in lesbian circles because on some level, like we might say, people might say trans men are men, but if the only men allowed at the lesbian bar are trans men, then just think about that for a second. There's this sort of tacit understanding that nobody's actually going to say, but the trans men are, are like welcome at the lesbian bar, whereas like the cis guys are not. Anyway, different story. So <laughs> in like maybe, uh, let's see, 2012, I was living in uh, a small city in North Carolina and I just moved there and I met this guy, a trans guy, and I became really good friends with him. And he told me, so he had moved from an even smaller city in North Carolina and he, while he was uh, living in a small town in North Carolina, he lived in a house with, with four or five housemates. All, they were all women. They were all lesbians. They all knew each other from the, the dyke scene. He came out as trans, transitions. Within a year, the entire household had transitioned. And I said to him, this is statistically impossible. How did you all happen to find each other in this small town? What is going on here? And, this was my first sort of like, wait a second, like, is this an anomaly here? What is going on in your household? And then I started to see that same thing happen in different pockets of friendships, right? So first off, there was this one household. And then four years later, every household with, you know, with five yeah. lesbians is like, has now half of them have transitioned. And it makes me feel like I am crazy that I am the only person within these circles saying, wait a second, guys, what are you all doing? What is going on here? Why do you all have, why have you all had top surgery? Why are you all changing your names? Why are the people that I knew 10 years ago as all lesbians, why are you all men now? You hated men. You were anti-men and now you're all men. What is going on here? 
And it, and, and the denial of this, or just the, mm-hmm. the, when, when another, when, when you come out as trans and you can see this, I see this on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook all the time. Somebody comes out and there is this flood of positivity. Congratulations. You're so brave. You, you're finally in the body. You're finally found the name that makes you comfortable. Blah, blah, blah. There is so much positive reinforcement that it is not hard to see why people seek that out. And I don't think it's necessarily conscious and I don't, and I, and I think it's organic. I don't think that there are these outside forces in gender clinics. It's different. I think with youth where you go to a, you go to a clinic and you have some authority figure tell you, yes, you're trans. But I think within sort of my milieu, my peer group, which is slightly older than the, you know, the, the teenagers that were like that people are concerned about. I think it is pretty organic. I think it's a social contagion, you know, the same reason that mm. we all have stupid tattoos and we all have the same haircuts, you know, and we all wear the same clothes. It's the same thing. And I don't think that's even necessarily bad because humans are social animals and all aspects of human behavior are influenced by our peer groups, right? Almost all aspects. The dogs that we get, the names that we give our children, the foods that we eat, the restaurants that we go to, the movies that we like. We are social animals. We are influenced by peers. And we're supposed to deny that this is happening in this one instance. So we can say fashion, yes, obviously there's some sort of social contagion, some sort of influence here. Uh, food, music, whatever. But this one thing, we're supposed to pretend that this is all a genuine, you know, everybody is just coming to their own. And it just so happens that like half of lesbians are trans dudes, it turns out. We're supposed to congratulate and clap and snap and whatever. And when I say I don't think it's bad, I I actually do think it's bad. I don't think it's an anomaly. I think it's natural. What bothers me is that we're supposed to pretend that something else is going on when it should be obvious. I I really agree with that. And I I want to ask you about the aspects of it that are bad. So, so you describe it as a social contagion, um, similar to other forms of social contagion, but obviously this one has more striking consequences on the individual and arguably on the community at large because trans, the trans idea becomes this quite fashionable thing and lots of young people in particular. I mean, the number, whenever I get abuse on Instagram from young people, I, every single time there are people who've got their pronouns in their bio. And it's, it, it, it's the same kind of person every single time, you know, very abusive and very much part of that social contagion, part of that idea. But in terms of the consequences that are bad, one thing that strikes me as so strange and really worth thinking about is that one of the arguments that was made by generally progressive people over the past few decades is that we needed less shame in society. People shouldn't be ashamed of their bodies, particularly young women going through puberty. Nothing to be ashamed about. This is the kind of thing we can talk about, kind of thing we can celebrate. It's perfectly normal. We should encourage young girls to see this as normal. Homosexuality is nothing to be ashamed of. If people are going to, if are having gay feelings at that stage in their life, absolutely fine. No shame in it. We should welcome that and we should encourage people to be open about how they feel. But we now find ourselves in a situation where, and this is something that concerns me enormously, there is a a growing sense of shame among young girls in particular in relation to their bodies and, and very often in relation to their sexuality. And so 
Breast binding, for example, has become an alarmingly common phenomenon in some schools. Even some pretty posh schools in the UK now offer young girls advice on the best way to bind your breasts, which strikes me as such an incredibly irresponsible thing to do to girls whose bodies are changing. To, you know, be ashamed of your breasts, wrap them up in a way that's often quite dangerous and quite painful. And then there's the shamefulness about being a lesbian, you know, oh dear, maybe I should transition. And the thing I keep coming back to is that one of the countries with the highest number of transgender operations is Iran. And the reason Iran has a high number of transgender operations is because it is virulently homophobic. And it would far prefer a, a gay man in particular to be a woman rather than to be a gay man. So there's a strong element of transphobia kind of sweeping around the transgender idea in Iran. But do you think that explains aspects of what's happening in the West? Is there an underlying homophobia? And how is it, or not necessarily homophobia, but there's an underlying, alongside the social contagion and the fashion for this stuff, do you think there is this strange sense that homosexuality is something to be embarrassed about, or it's old-fashioned, or it's no longer enough, and therefore you have to take these pretty drastic measures to become something better and more interesting? Yeah, it, it's interesting because at the same time that this trans phenomenon has emerged, the terms gay and lesbian have gone out of fashion. Lesbian in particular mm. and queer has emerged. Bisexual has gone yeah. out of fashion. Now it's pansexual. So it's this idea that it's, it's sort of the anti-bullying inclusive. Everything needs to be inclusive. We all need to be inclusive. Organizations need to be inclusive. We need to be inclusive with our own bodies. That does have, it's sort of this horseshoe theory, right? Where, you know, a conservative would say like, uh, homosexuality is a sin because of, for whatever reason, and, and a liberal would say, oh, it's, it's bad because it's exclusive because you're excluding people from your sexuality. Um, so I think that's part of it. I probably for some people, especially some parents, some parents would probably rather have a trans kid than a gay kid. Maybe part of that comes from some sort of conservative agenda. Part of it also probably becomes because you get a lot of points for progressives. If you are the parent who says like, I want to introduce you to my trans daughter. We are supportive, blah, blah, blah. In some communities, you're going to get, you're a hero. You are a hero. And people want to be heroes. So I think that's part of it. You know, I think in a couple decades, we're going to look back on this time and with maybe a little bit of a clearer vision about the origins of this, what happened, why it's happening. We'll know how it resolves. I do not think this is going to be a permanent state of affairs. I think that this is momentary psychosis in some ways. And this is not to say, you know, that I don't think trans people should have the right to transition, that I don't think trans adults should be able to do whatever they want. I do. But there are consequences that we need to grapple with. And yes, one of them is uh, an strangely increase in, in homophobia. And, homophobia. And you can actually see this in polling, um, where acceptance of, of homosexuals um, has actually gone down in recent years, at least mm. in the US. And I think part of that is because of this this conflation of trans and gay, which are not the same things. We are not actually natural allies. There is a difference between sexuality and gender identity, although they can be closely tied together. Yes, it's uh, strange times, strange times. So like you, the optimistic side of me thinks that in 15 or 20 years' time, we'll, people will look back on this period with wide eyes and bemusement and horror at the fact that girls were binding their breasts and transitioning to become the correct sex and taking um, hormone-altering drugs at a very young age, I hope that we will, in, with, with at least with the benefit of hindsight, 
uh, think that some of that stuff was wrong and we rushed into it too quickly and that there should have been more discussion and less cancellation in order to, because that's how you protect yourself against bad ideas. You talk about them, you have an honest discussion. One of the things I think we will look back on with concern is the kind of stuff that you've been writing a lot about recently, which is the invasion of medicine by wokeness, by the woke ideology and by the gender fluid ideology, I guess. And that's particularly problematic, isn't it? Because in the world of medicine, when we're treating people who are ill or who have specific problems, you kind of need to know some basic facts about those people. You need to know some basic biological chromosomal facts about certain individuals in order to provide them with the most effective forms of treatment. So could you just give us an overview of the kind of things that you've discovered in the world of medicine and how these ideas are impacting on it? Yeah, so I, I've been working on a series with Barry Weiss, the former New York Times columnist and editor, on, for lack of a better term, wokeness in medicine. And what I have found is that the same things that have taken over media and tech and education are also infiltrating medicine. And this is also happening in law. A bunch of people are sending me tips about law schools sort of going woke. And this is, it's interesting. It's also, uh, depending on who you are, it can be troubling, but this, uh, there's, I guess we can, we can, to put it most simply, institutions, medical schools in particular are going woke. They're incorporating lots of anti-racist and sort of neo-gender ideology into their curriculum. So I interviewed a student at a top medical school at the University of California system who is being taught in her classes that sex is a social construct. She sent me a slide and uh, I heard the audio of an instructor in medical school saying not just gender is a social construct, but sex is a social construct. We do not want a generation of doctors believing that sex is a social construct because (laughs) diseases manifest differently in men and women. And to me, there's this great irony because for decades, women have been arguing that there needs to be more emphasis on women's healthcare, um, Mm -hmm. things like heart attacks. Like, I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, there's a sort of popular conception of a heart attack. You know, you get this pain in your arm, you see it on TV, you grab your arm, and then all of a sudden you die. Well, heart attacks manifest differently in in males and females. That doesn't happen with females. I don't think most women would even know that because this is just something that isn't emerged in the popular consciousness. And so at the same time that, or in theory, at the same time that we're trying to uh, further Further, these, uh, these very particular, I don't know, research, um, just have more knowledge about women's bodies and how they work. And, and historically, women's bodies have been sort of ignored. Um, we have medical schools teaching students that sex doesn't matter. And when it comes to medicine, sex is incredibly important. After talking to a lot of people, doctors in particular, as well as some students in this field, what I have realized is that if I ever need surgery, I want an old ass doctor to, <laughs> to operate on me. Um, yeah. So it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. And it's just, it's happening really quickly, you know, and, and probably all this comes from postmodernism. You know, Helen Pluckrose could probably tell you the origins of this um, in a way that I, I am no sort of expert. Um, but yes, this is happening very quickly where you see top medical schools teaching things like this. And that should be troubling to everybody. And the consequences, as you say, when it comes to medicine, sex is actually important. And people have been making that argument for a long time, particularly in relation to treating women's health care as a specific thing and an important thing. That's something that feminists and others argued for for a long time. Um, but there have been some pretty disturbing examples that you've drawn attention to. For example, a trans man who 
uh, had abdominal pains, but because it wasn't recognised in any serious way that this was a female, this was a biological female, it wasn't recognised that this person was pregnant. So now that might be an extreme example, but that is the logic of the kind of thing we're talking about. Whereas, it, it, right. you know, if you have a biological female going into a medical setting being treated as a male, right. then things are, are potentially going to go very wrong. Right. So I published this this piece and a bunch of people, as always, say basically like they just say like you're lying. None of this happens. That always happens. And then the next day, so the timing was impeccable. The next day, I believe the American Medical Association came out with a statement advocating that that biological sex be removed from birth certificates. And I do like I'm not one of these people who gets incredibly mad about the idea of using language like pregnant people because I mean I, pregnant females is is correct but yes it is true that trans men can get pregnant I know a couple trans men who have had had children I think they should be included in healthcare I'm not one of these people who gets super mad about that kind of thing but the idea that we're going to replace the idea of biological sex with gender identity in a medical context is incredibly dangerous and it's going to be dangerous for the very people they are supposedly trying to help. So mm. if you go into a hospital and somebody says, what are your pronouns? That's one thing. But if they say, what are your pronouns? And they don't also note that you are a biological male or a biological female, there's going to be issues when you are seeking healthcare. Um, yeah. So I don't see how this even benefits trans people. You can have both. You can be hyper progressive, hyper woke on pronouns. I don't think that's actually a good idea when it comes to hospitals, because the vast majority of people who enter a hospital are not the kind of person who wears a pronoun name tag on their sleeve or has their pronouns on their bio. And it can be very alienating if you have, say, I don't know, like an 80-year-old uh, year old Korean war vet and you come in and you, you ask him what his pronouns are. He, what he's going to hear is, are you a man or a woman? And that's going yeah. to be not just offensive, it's going to yeah. also lower his, uh, his, it's going to worsen his own experience. It's going to create some division between him and his healthcare providers. So I think people actually need to be careful about that. But when it comes to to biological sex, your medical records need to indicate what your biological sex is. Even if you appear to be male or appear to be a man or appear to be a woman, patients also need to be forthcoming. That's part of it. But records need to indicate this for the sake of not just the patient, but also the people who are trying to help the patient. Um, I, I, I talked to a person also who works in healthcare, and she told me about a case where uh, a trans guy came in, and they spent all of this time... He was uh, assessed as having testicular torsion. I don't know what that is, but it sounds incredibly painful. And so they spent all of the time trying to figure out what was going on until they realized that the man didn't have testicles or the testicles that he had were not actual testicles. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what the actual situation was down yeah. there. But so it, it's a waste of time for providers as well. And that's going to hurt both the providers and the patients and the other patients in the hospital who need to be seen because somebody isn't forthcoming about their own biological sex. So there's a way to be both sensitive and to be accurate. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? 
So stay on top of everything Spiked produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. It also speaks to the detrimental impact that the culture of conformism and the culture of cancellation can have on something as important as medicine and, and medical provision, because if we are constantly told to bow down to the mantra, trans women are women, for example, right. and that even thinking otherwise is a problem, never mind saying it, but even having the incorrect thought that actually, well, this person says he's a woman, but in fact, he's a man, even thinking that has become a thought crime, essentially, and you're supposed to be ashamed for doing it. You can see a situation where younger medical practitioners in particular, who may have been socialized into these ways of thinking, will have really imbibed that idea that it is wrong to think of this person presenting themselves in the doctor's office as actually a woman or right. actually a man. So there's a lot of difficulties there, I think, that we are creating for ourselves. Right. But in relation to the question of language, uh, language and medicine, which I think is very interesting, and, you know, for example, the replacement of terms like uh, even the National Health Service in the UK, which is people around the world admire the National Health Service. Sometimes I don't quite know why, but they do. It's free at the point of delivery. And that's certainly a preferable situation to the one that you have in the US. Um, but even the NHS has bought into a lot of this stuff. And lots of NHS trusts will say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. And they will use the word cervix to encourage people to have smear tests and so on, rather than using the word woman. And that stuff on one level, you could argue that they are being more inclusive, but on another level, you could actually argue that the consequences are exclusion. So if you think about immigrant women totally. in particular, for example, yeah. there are large numbers of immigrant women in the UK. English might not be their first language. They might not be familiar with words like cervix, but they're very familiar with words like woman. So once again, you see these unintended consequences where women's health, and especially in some instances, the health of women from poorer or immigrant communities can be impacted on by the supposedly happy, clappy politics of inclusion. Oh, totally. It's very top down. And uh, I spoke to a, a medical student who's at a, a school in New York, and she brought up this point. She's uh, Her mother is an Egyptian immigrant. English is not her first language. She already has a hard time understanding her doctors. And when you complicate things, when you just make it harder, all that does is lower her trust and her ability to get good health care. You know, and doctors should have maybe a sort of hopefully a, a natural or a taught aptitude to sort of, you know, if somebody comes in with green hair and a button that says they, them or something versus, you know, an 80 year old Egyptian immigrant <laughs> woman coming in, you should probably be able to to adjust your own behavior and your own language in order to make that person feel comfortable. But if what you're being taught is always announce your pronouns, ask your patient their pronouns, refer to mothers as pregnant people or breastfeeding as chest feeding, if you're doing that in every case, you're going to end up alienating the actual most marginalized populations, which are populations that are poor, uneducated immigrants um, who don't speak the language. You know, this is this is university level language that is being imposed on everybody. Absolutely. Completely agree. Moving on from that very issue of the imposition of language, the control of language, the expectation that everyone ought to use the same language. And if you don't, you're committing some kind of grave moral error. Let's talk a little bit more about that kind of culture and 
its parent, which is cancel culture and uh, the thing that you have experienced and been at the sharp end of over the past few years. One of the things that you said, which I think is very interesting, you said that you cannot be cancelled because you you refuse to be cancelled. Now, on one level, that makes perfect sense to me because cancellation does require an element, even though it can be an incredible form of pressure on people, it does require an element of self-cancellation where you bow down to the mob and say, okay, I won't do this again. I'm sorry. I'll slink off into the obscurity and stop being so offensive. But on another level, do you think there's an element of, I really don't want to use the word privilege (laughs) because it's my least favorite word, but for for someone like you who who can refuse to be cancelled, and I guess I would be in the same boat and I know lots of other people who are targets of cancellation and just cannot be cancelled because they want to carry on talking, they want to carry on writing. But there are other people for whom, who can't really take that position. And if you think about people lower down in the publishing world or administrators at a university or people who work in supermarkets or, you know, have ordinary important jobs in society, do you recognise that cancel culture can have a chilling effect on those kinds of people who feel less capable of saying what they believe to be true. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I think it's important to speak about it. So I was one Mm. of the signatories of the Harper's letter, the now notorious Harper's letter that came out last year, (laughs) in which uh, I think 200, maybe, I'm not sure what the number was, a bunch of public intellectuals and then me um, signed this signed this letter basically advocating for free speech. And it didn't use the term cancel culture at all, but that was sort of the, I don't know, the unstated the unstated topic was cancel culture. And the critics of this letter basically all made the same point, which is, oh, this is a bunch of, like JK, JK Rowling signed it. This is a bunch of privileged people who aren't actually canceled signing this letter. And that's true. It's certainly true. JK Rowling, you know, she's still a billionaire, no matter what people say about her online. Although I do think it's important to realize that just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they lack any like human emotion. Rich people can be yeah. can be sad too. Yeah. They can leave, <laughs> you know, they have this the same array of, of human emotions as the rest of us. They just have like nice infinity pools they can swim in and they can get daily massages <laughs> or whatever. I know that's why that's why I think it's important to talk about because my inbox is full daily, is full of people who do not benefit. I benefit from this. I'm a yeah. I'm a, a person who wants to be a pundit. I make my money off of off of listeners. Controversy is good for me. But most people are not like that. And those are the people who I think we should be concerned about. The people who email us and who say, "Look, I can't say this. I want you to know this, but I cannot say this." This series that I did with Barry, we published three or four pieces at this point. And I was mostly talking to doctors. So doctors are, you know, doctors, at least in the US, they're generally pretty well compensated. So these are not poor people, but these are people who are scared for their careers. And very, very few of them would go on record, even though they are deeply concerned about what's going on, because the consequences for them are really grave. And it doesn't matter that they, you know, that they're they're doctors, they still need to make a living, you know? So no, I think that's, that's why we talk about this. I think that's, uh, that's a really important point. And I think that was actually one of the strongest aspects of the Harper's letter, the fact that it was people who still enjoy the capacity to have a public platform, despite the best efforts of the cancel culture mob. There was this hilarious, um, 
respond to the Harper's letter in which a bunch of people who yeah. disagreed with the Harper's letter wrote another letter basically saying like, no, cancel culture isn't real. You're just racist. You're sexist. You're trying to continue to monopolize all of the channels and all of the privilege, whatever. They're in, they had, I don't know, 200 signatories, whatever. And a bunch of them were anonymous because they said they were afraid of the repercussions. And it was like, way to make the point for us. This is what we're talking about. You too should be able to make your idiotic points. Even if her point is wrong, you should still be able to make it. We are also arguing in favor of you, you, you who are unwilling to put your name to this. Exactly. And, the, you know, the thing that I find so frustrating about the cancel culture discussion is that there's a real cancel culture denialism at the moment. Lots of people will say it just doesn't exist. And they will say, well, J.K. Rowling hasn't been cancelled. Katie Herzog hasn't been cancelled. Uh, Suzanne Moore from The Guardian, who was kind of chased out because she is trans-skeptical, she hasn't been cancelled. She now has a column at The Telegraph, another national newspaper. And I find that such a frustrating argument because, firstly, I completely agree with you. It doesn't matter if J.K. Rowling is a billionaire. The fact that she is threatened with rape and death all the time and subjected yeah. to the most horrendous abuse simply for holding perfectly rational, well-articulated views about the tension between trans rights and women's rights, that's still a very bad thing, which probably has a detrimental impact on her sense of self and uh, her willingness to maybe even her willingness to say certain things. Maybe she hasn't said as much as she would like to say because of this extraordinary response. So just because someone's rich, just because they still have a platform, doesn't mean that it's still not a bad thing to try and shame and harass and abuse and threaten them because of their moral or political views. But at the same time, I think the key point is, I think that the real function of these spectacles of cancellation is not that they will successfully prevent someone like you from ever speaking in public again, the real function of them is to have a chilling effect across society and to say, well, look what can happen even to J.K. Rowling, you know, the, arguably the most important cultural figure Britain has produced in the past 20 years, incredibly wealthy, very well established. Even she can be subjected to the most horrific forms of abuse simply for saying this. Imagine what will happen to you. Imagine what will happen to you that... 58 year old librarian or you know the yeah. woman who stacks shelves in a supermarket could just imagine if you were to open a, a, an internet account or to say these things to your friends just imagine the response so it's that chilling effect isn't it it's that effect that it has on public culture more broadly where it gives rise to self-cancellation by people who've seen what happens to others right and it also it i think it it cultivates a sense of dishonesty where people really say yeah. things or, or more, maybe more often post things that they don't actually believe because there is this yes. unstated yeah. social pressure to conform. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's that compulsion to almost a compulsion to lie. And yeah. I speak to people all the time who will say to me, I agree with what you say on this, but I could never say it in public. And I even know some people who tell me they agree with me on certain things, but their social media output would suggest that they have the polar opposite view because they feel compelled to engage in that performance of virtue and that performance of correct think. Right. In relation to that culture of dishonesty and the broader question of freedom of speech, because this is something else I wanted to ask you about, which is that you talk about the positive impact that cancel culture had on you, not only in relation to your professional life, but also on you, uh, on how you think and how you approach issues. So you say that you used to be a bit of a purist 
earlier in in the podcast, you said that you used to think all conservatives were just stupid or, or evil. And cancel culture has transformed how you approach issues as well, hasn't it? Has it, it has it made you more committed to the idea of freedom of speech and more oh, yeah. determined to uphold everyone's right to say what they want and to test those ideas out in the public realm? It absolutely has. I've become, uh, my 25-year-old self would be shocked to say this, but I've become somewhat of a civil libertarian on that, um, on that front. <laughs> I've, I've always, um, you know, my, I was raised by old school liberals. My parents, um, actually do believe in, 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 freedom of speech and, and they haven't changed it. So I was, I was raised by people who, um, who have always held that value. And, and maybe, uh, so maybe I haven't changed as much as the world has changed around me. And that becomes a sort of extremist point. Um, if you stop moving in the world, the world moves on. Um, but no, I, I become, yes, much more, much more, uh, I guess libertarian on that point, especially when it comes to not just government censorship, but tech censorship as well. I've defended the rights of people like Alex Jones to, uh, to say that something in the water makes frogs gay or something, you know, whatever he's going to spout. Um, and there are, there are trade-offs and I think it's, you know, it's important for all of us that we acknowledge that there are real trade-offs to, uh, to freedom of speech, something that we have much more robust protections of over here in the U.S. than you have in the U.K. Like, I think, I think the laws that, your laws are insane. The idea that the police would, would, you know, show up at someone's house for getting in a, in a spat on Twitter, which apparently does happen in, in your, in your country. I think it's just, just totally insane. Um, it has made me, honestly, it's made me appreciate the United States more in that, in that one particular respect, the fact that I can say whatever I want on Twitter and, or almost whatever I want on Twitter and the likelihood that, you know, a uniformed officer is going to come knocking on my door is, um, <laughs> slim. Yeah, the situation in the UK is far worse than it is in the US and far worse than it is in many other countries as well. I mean, you literally will get a knock on the door from the police if you make an off-colour joke online or uh, if you post a limerick, a a, a funny poem about transgender people, that literally has happened. The police have visited people and said, we need to correct your thinking on these matters. Is this what happens when you don't have when you don't have uh, six hundred million guns in a country? They can spend their time doing, <laughs> <laughs> doing yeah, policing exactly. Twitter. Yeah, that's right. And the latest story in the UK is that the police are now driving around rainbow cars I through the this. streets. I saw this with the hope with the hope that people will will flag them down and tell them about some social media abuse. I mean, really extraordinary stuff. My, my question is, how do the police feel about this? Is this is this? Do the people who are joining the police want to be in like? Do they want to be the the thought police, or are they uh, are they as embarrassed about this as they should be? <laughs> Well, I think there's probably a similar dynamic to younger generations going into medicine and and go or or business or the corporate world and having been socialized and educated into holding particular views on trans issues or identity issues and uh, you know the role of the state in in making sure that people think the correct way and don't ever offend others. I think having grown up with some of those beliefs that some of them probably see it as their job to bring that into the actual policing of the country. So it's a pretty disturbing state of affairs. But like you, like you've just said there, I was very pleased to hear you say that you stand up for the right of Alex Jones to spout his uh, absolute nonsense. And because I think what what some people miss, and this is the kind of uh, the final question I wanted to ask you, really, what some people miss is, you know, the pretty basic idea that lots of heroes throughout history have made, which is that freedom of speech is either for everyone or it's for no one. And right. it, the minute you say that there are, that, well, there's a handful of ideas you can't express, then 
it's no longer freedom of speech. It's licensed speech. Right. Essentially, you have a license to speak so long as you don't say the things that are unsayable. Right. And licensed speech is, by definition, not free speech. So I wanted to ask you how you think more people can do the kind of thing that you've done, which is to push back against this culture and actually to benefit from this culture and to turn it into something to be a victim of this culture, but then to blow back against it. So, you know, maybe cancel culture is, to use paraphrase marks, maybe it's creating its own grave diggers because the more people that it attempts to cancel, the more opponents it will no doubt give rise to. But how, what do you think is the best way for others, including those who don't necessarily have the platforms that some of us have or the uh, access, access to podcasts and newspaper columns and everything else, what's the best thing they can do to withstand this kind of culture? Is it simply to be more confident, to have mm -hmm. the balls, to, to say what you're not supposed to say? How, what do you think is the best approach to that? You know, I don't think that I can really give blanket advice on this because every situation is different and there are very different uh, protections under the law. So if you're a public employee in the United States, if you work for a public university or a public institution, you do have some protections that, a, a you know, someone, uh, an employee at a private business wouldn't have because you're protected by the First Amendment. Your employers cannot tell you what you can say with, with very few uh, exceptions. So... I think public school professors are, I think, are ideally suited to speak out because they are protected under the law. And, uh, this isn't always easy. You're, it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. Even if there can't be legal consequences or obvious professional consequences, there can always be social consequences. So it's not easy to speak up about these things. But there's also power in numbers, you know? And the more people who speak up about it, the more power this uh, whatever we are doing, this counter movement to the movement is doing, will have. So my advice to people is to try to find allies wherever you are. And mm -hmm. it can be uh, it can be sort of difficult to parse that out, you know, but there, there are small tells, right? If everybody in your business has their pronouns in their bio, except for a couple of other people, that tells you something, right? Or has their, their pronouns mm -hmm. in their email signature. Or even now, the, the, the new thing is putting your race in their, your email signature. So you can look for those little things that are tells that tell you that, you know, this person is not fully on board with this. So, so my advice to people is to try to figure out who your allies are. If for no other reason, then it is very important to have social support. It is very important to have people to talk to. Um, to make you feel less crazy, to make you feel less alone. Even if you can't, you know, write your own version of the Harper's letter and present it to your boss um, or whatever, post it online. By finding allies, you can at least feel a little bit of solace and uh, figure out figure out if, if coming out is problematic or, or anti-woke is something that you can do. But I think it is really important for people to um, to evaluate their own positions. You know, if you are, if you have a family, if you don't have a trust funds, if you uh, if you need your income desperately to survive, if you don't have a backup plan, be cautious. I don't think people should throw themselves on a pyre uh, and you know in service of this movement. I think people need to be you know have a sense of self preservation if they can. But for people who do have the luxury of speaking out, people like me, people like you, if you have that luxury, then you, then you, sh then you should. Katie, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks for having me.
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.